Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ. As always, the emotionally needy, prone to catching feelings, just kind of an emotional hot mess, Pisces. Um, and this is my co-host. And I'm Aaron. Who is the emotionally unavailable, yet sometimes volatile Aries. He hates it when I call him volatile, which is why I'm doing it. Yes, yes, that's me. I'm so volatile. You can tell from my voice, can't you? He likes to pretend that he's very sanguine and, like, you know, low-key and, and zen, but he has his moments, as fire signs tend to do. Don't let him fool you, ladies and gentlemen and NBs. Like, there's more that, that meets the eye with this one. Anyway, we don't need to go off too far afield into the wild west of astrology, although we love doing that here at Queen's. We're coming before you this week with a contemporary movie. We're going to be talking today about They, Them, the new slasher, and I put that in very heavy scare quotes, uh, that was just released from Peacock just the other day. It just came out. So we're keeping abreast of the things that are going on in queer pop culture here at Queens. <laughs> he just said breast. I did say breast. Um, I'm a gay man. Of course I like breasts. <laughs> that's kind of the thing. I don't mean to essentialize, but that's kind of what we do. But anyway, I'm not going to let Aaron distract me with talk of breasts. So, any case, we're going to be talking today about They, Them, which, as I said, is a slasher, supposedly, focusing on a group of queer teens who are sent to a gay conversion camp, which is just about as horrifying as you would imagine. And eventually, after roughly an hour into the movie, lots of slayings happen. And then, spoiler alert, it's revealed that the murderer was, in fact, one of the f- former camp people that had taken up a position as the camp counselor. So that's... Spoiler alert. I just said spoiler alert. <laughs> so that's the gist of it. Um, an unimaginative movie. And I have to be fr- frank with you listeners, we did not either of us particularly like this movie. I didn't hate the movie. Uh, it was just sort of a movie. <laughs> yes. I mean, like I said, we didn't hate it, but we didn't. I didn't find myself particularly like enjoying it or celebrating this movie as much as I might have expected, but I had been reading some of the criticism, which we'll get to in a little while. But because we here at Queens tend to be redemptive in our critical model, we like to look for the good in things, at least that's what I like to do, I thought we could begin our discussion with what we enjoyed about the film, and then we can maybe get into the meat of it, which I think there's a lot more to say about what we didn't like, Mm -hmm. but there's enough of what we did like that made it okay. So the first segment will be short. Short-ish. So let's start with Kevin Bacon, who plays the sort of leader of this camp. And, I mean, I, I mean, like many gay men of a certain age, which, you know, basically those of us who came of age in the 80s and 90s, I've long had a love affair with Kevin Bacon. He, you know, is funny looking slightly, but he's also handsome. And he does have a sort of star persona that works really well. You know, and I think Owen Whistler, which is the his character's name is arguably one of the more interesting characters in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I felt like that was true when we get to the other characters as well as sort of the adult characters for me, not surprising I'm old, uh, but they were kind of more interesting for me than the, the, the ones at the camp, uh, the younger folks in the story. Yes. And I mean, so I think that it's unclear to the extent to which this character, Kevin Bacon's character, that is, has motivation. We'll get to that a little later. But I do think that because it's Bacon and because he's a genuine Hollywood star, we don't necessarily need all that for his character to feel authentic, to feel rich and textured, even if the 
exposition doesn't really give us much to go on. And so I appreciated him there. And he's also, like, one of the few characters that's genuinely sinister. Like, some of the other camp people are just there. They don't really have a much weight to them. But I think that because Kevin Bacon is just such a good actor that he gives that certain bite, if you will, to that portrayal. Oh, and I feel like that's so unfair to Anna Chlumsky and Carrie Preston. Uh, the well, other they're not the ones of, I was talking about. I was talking about the other ones. But. The other ones who were at the camp who work there. Uh, and for that, we might want to go back and clarify who we're talking about uh, for all this, because we kind of just jumped right in. So at this camp run by uh, Kevin Bacon's character, Owen Whistler, uh, it's staffed uh, with a couple of other people, two of those folks, are the counselor who sort of works there, played by Carrie Preston. Her character's name is Cora. And Anna Shlomsky shows up, brunette, <laughs> uh, playing the nurse who works there named Molly. And so they show up a lot. Now, there are a few other people associated with the camp that we don't really see much of as well, but those two uh, other characters are also main characters, uh, like Kevin Bacon's character. Right, and so I'm glad you brought up Carrie Preston, because I think actually she's probably my favorite of the adult characters, because there's a really powerful scene where she is interrogating Theo Germain. If you are familiar with The the Politician, which is a not very good show on Netflix, (laughs) you'll be familiar with Theo Germain, who plays this film's sort of moral heart, the final person, if you will, and who would be the final person in a traditional slasher, whose name is Jordan, non-binary, as Theo Germain is themselves. And... There's this really powerful scene where Carrie Preston, his character, Cora, is basically, like, framed in the horror way, like, because it's shot reverse shot, and it shows us, like, her sort of looming over, or, you know, sitting, but sitting across from yet also looming over Jordan, basically tearing apart their identity as a non-binary person, and, like, being, essentially saying, and she comes right out and says it, you're just an ugly little dyke, which... The way it's framed with Carrie Preston performs it, the way that Theodore Germain performs it, I actually think is one of the film's best scenes and the one that's most genuinely horrifying because it's true to life, but framed as we would expect in like a horror thriller, maybe something out of American Horror Story, like out of Asylum, for example. Yeah, but let's not, you know, I think you, you jumped right in to sort of the payoff without giving us the buildup of that performance and why that scene, I think, works so well. Because when it starts out, uh, we have Jordan who, you know, is at this camp, you know, doesn't really want to be there. It's a deal they've made uh, in order to be emancipated. They're like, you know, if I come to this camp and do this thing, Fine, I agree to your terms, parents. I will do this. But then you have to let me emancipate myself and make my own decisions from here on out. And so, you know, unlike some of the campers at this camp, uh, Theo, I'm sorry, Theo Germain's character, Jordan, and some of the other primary characters are not here willingly. Right. And that's important to keep in mind that some are there because they kind of want to be and others really don't want to be. Right. (laughs) And uh, when... uh, they meet. They all have to talk to the counselor, uh, played by Carrie Preston. And when that character shows up, she's this almost kind of wimpy kind of character. She's very sort of soft-spoken. And, and when I say wimpy, I mean that not in a really bad way, but just kind of someone who's very kind of soft. Right. As one would expect. I mean, Carrie Preston's like arguably greatest role was in True Blood. Yeah, and she, she's great at playing sort of these whipped puppy characters. Uh-huh. Who, and that's kind of how she comes across, where she's just kind of like, okay, so let's just sort of talk about the stuff that, you know, why you're here and all this kind of stuff that makes her seem like she's almost going to be kind of nice. Right? right. But then as she's doing this, she's got this kind of little, you know, 
kind of like supportive smile on her face <laughs> while she's saying all of this kind of stuff to Jordan and, you know, trying to, to sort of break down their defenses first. And then as the scene builds, that sort of little kind of wimpy smile turns into this sort of sinister sneer very subtly and slowly <laughs> throughout the scene again. Kudos to Carrie Preston for playing this part <laughs> because it's very subtle, just sort of moment by moment, these slight changes in her facial expression as she becomes more and more sinister and targeted with her comments to the point where she's a real stone-cold bitch by the end when she started out as this almost docile person. And during the entire time, she never moves. <laughs> and what I notice is that when she's sitting there, she's sitting there with such tight posture while she's doing this that one of her feet is actually hanging off the ground. And it is completely motionless the entire time. Which I'm like, I don't even know how you do that. I'm way too fidgety. Right. <laughs> but she is stone cold, silent and still in that scene while she's just tearing apart this person. Mm -hmm. In such a quiet way. It truly is something like we can't describe before you have to watch it. Yep. No, I mean, I, I really do think that if anything saves this film... It's that scene. Like, I, I, I was not thrilled with the rest of it. I wasn't even particularly frightened or disturbed. But that scene right there was the payoff, yeah. I think. And I think that it, uh, Carrie Preston deserves all the recognition. And I think because she's so familiar to us as, you know, Arlene and True Blood and other kind of, like, Southern church lady kind of roles, that that's what makes this feel so sinister because you always do have the sense with Carrie Preston that there's a monster like mm -hmm. under there. That underneath that sugary, sweet persona, there's something much darker. And I appreciate that this film gives her the opportunity to bring that out. Exactly. You know, definitely, like you said, save the movie for you. And it's the thing that I'm like, I will always give this movie kudos for that performance. And also because I think the movie treated the performance appropriately. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of extra going on in this moment. It's a very simply shot scene that just lets the performances radiate. And Theo Germain, to their credit, does a great job acting opposite Carrie Preston mm -hmm. in that moment. And again, matching that stillness and allowing that sort of festering feeling of sinisterness to grow and kind of take over without doing too much in response to it. You right. know, it's really well done on both of their parts. Right, it? and I mean, I think that I like that you brought up Theo Germain's performance because I, I, you know, I don't want to jump the gun and get into the what we don't like, but I do think that the characters, particularly the adolescent characters, are very so thinly drawn that I don't find them particularly interesting. And so therefore I don't feel like their torment has that much weight, but Theo's an exception to that, which is a credit to their skill as an actor and the fact that the script actually gives them something to do. And so I appreciated that. Um, and I think that they are, in some ways, the emotional heart of the film, even though the film doesn't actually give them a lot to do, except in moments like this. Mm -hmm. And I I sometimes, maybe this will be the, the way of jumping into the, the next segment, which, you know, <laughs> we have, we've given this film its credit. We've spent about eight, nine minutes talking about what we liked. So I think that's fair. I think that's proportional to what we have discovered so far. But I will say that the only other thing I did like was the musical interlude, which yes. was weird, but I liked it. But it felt like it helicoptered in from a different movie. Mm -hmm. It felt like it helicoptered in from like the version of this movie directed by Ryan Murphy, yes. which would have been like a mashup of Glee, 1980, American Horror Story 1984, and American Horror Story Asylum, which quite frankly would have been a much more enjoyable and exciting movie. But there is this mm -hmm. moment where... like. The adolescents start singing Pink, mm -hmm. You're Fucking Perfect. And it's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's well done. It's a well-chosen song. They sing very well. Like, there's a lot of interesting choreography. Even the jock joins in. It did feel very weird just because it's unlike anything else that happens in the entire mm -hmm. movie. Yeah. 
And so I liked it in isolation in much the same way that I liked the scene with Carrie Preston. But because the rest of the movie doesn't really hold up that promise, I'm just like, okay, like, thanks for this, but where's this kind of energy at in the rest of this otherwise very limp script? (laughs) Exactly. And that's the thing that for me that actually kind of saves it is because the song becomes the thing. Uh, because it's in the scene where the kids are all kind of singing together that they kind of break down their defenses. Right. Because, you know, they're all kind of on guard a bit until they have this moment. And then in various ways up to including the jock character that we just sort of briefly mentioned, sort of breaking down and just kind of having fun and kind of going, well, if we're going to be here, we're going to be here. Right. So and that's that and doing it through a fun song like that I actually thought was kind of an interesting strategy. Right. I mean, I guess it would have felt more meaningful if they'd been in like observed doing it by the camp counselors and punished but mm-hmm. as it is it's just kind of like there and then gone yeah and there's no reference to it ever again mm-hmm. and they and they get seen doing it because it's like we do get that one shot from kind of from outside sure where they are seen but you're right that's just kind of it but for me that's actually kind of an interesting choice as well because there's something else that this movie does uh that's actually kind of what i i kind of like it but then i kind of want more is that we've we're at this sort of ex-gay camp type <laughs> place where we're trying to quit get kids to stop being queer in various ways that's the point of this camp but they come right out and say that this place has no religious affiliation and they kind of stick to that promise they don't just say we have no religious affiliation but they really kind of do right like he just comes right out and says like i don't talk about god i don't do all that stuff and all of that kind of stuff and we kind of stick with that now because of that i like the fact that they don't get punished for having their little sing-off Right. Because I feel like punishing them for it would have felt weird given the what came before. Like sure. the, the fact where they're like, no, we're really actually okay with gay people. We're here because some people want to change and we want to help them do that. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there is something, and maybe we can use this as the jumping off point to what we don't like. There's something almost like incoherent about the camp itself that doesn't yeah. land. <laughs> so first of all, I, wanna, I have to say, I felt like this movie was released like 10 or 15 years too late. Like, I'm, I know that there are still conversion camps. I know that those are still a thing, or that at least like conversion therapy is still a thing. But it's not the sort of assumed, or at least, you know, it, it's not, how do I want to put this? It's not the part of American culture that it was 10 or 15 years ago, mm-hmm. where there wasn't such a backlash against it, where it was not necessarily something that people like encouraged, but nor was it seen as like this straight up evil unless you were part of the queer community mm-hmm. like you look at something like um latter days where it comes up or you know even but mm-hmm. i'm a cheerleader which obviously it's situation situated there is bad but mm-hmm. like well, i'm thinking of the one with chad Lowe, the one where he goes and i can't remember it now but i saw it a long time ago uh where he goes because he's like i don't want to be gay anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> right so you know and so some of the characters for example there's this one chick who's like a suburbanite and the fact that I can't even remember their names is pretty yeah. symptomatic, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm bad with names anyway, but this movie doesn't do give us much to wait, to go on. But she's like, oh, I don't want to be a lesbian because everyone in my suburban neighborhood is blah. I'm like, it is the year of our Lord, 2022. I find it very hard to imagine that any suburb has no gay people in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it just feels like a movie that was made or could have been made circa 2005 yeah. when those comments would have, you would have 
Bet that was would have been more legible and culturally understanding. Yeah, and even if there was the idea that everyone in your suburb was straight, which I can forgive a teenage character for thinking something like sure. that, for for not really being aware, but just, especially one who is queer themselves and is just sort of afraid of being rejected. I can see them kind of making these assumptions. But again, it's you know it's twenty twenty two, and this thing is set you know in the present. Does this kid not have a social media life? Are they well, not that, connected to people outside of their, like... Right, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. Is these are supposed to be, like, Gen Zers. Like, you yeah. know, arguably the queerest generation we've ever had. That's not to say that every, like, Gen Zer has this kind of queer network. But as you say, there's social media. Like, I find it very difficult to imagine that any, like, that anyone would be so detached from the social world that they wouldn't know that it's not that abnormal. Yeah. Particularly if you're a white blonde woman. Like mm-hmm. it just feels jarring and not particularly convincing. Yeah, exactly. I'm 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 still trying to figure out what world this is supposed to be. Right. And in the same way that like, since there's no Christian overtones are like explicitly. Yeah. Since that's explicitly disavowed, then I'm just like so why exactly does this exist? Because, I mean, it's almost always the case that conversion therapy is, like, because people are, like, almost always because of Christian orientation. Mm-hmm. Like, it just... Well, I'd say religious. Well, sure. Religious, yes, okay, fair enough. <laughs> religious. I mean, because it's clear that, like, Bacon's character is very much invested in gender normativity. But that's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not co-determinate with sexuality per se. Yeah. So it's just, I don't know. There's But see, I would even buy into that if the film were more coherent in its approach to this subject. And if it gave us a little more exposition to give us an explanation as to why Owen is so invested in this. But because we don't get that, I'm just sort of like, why don't... Because if it had positioned him, say, as like a Christian figure, you know, that we would expect, and mm-hmm. it, that would have been explained to Shen enough. Yeah. But because we don't have that... I'm not really sure where he's coming from or why he cares so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, I actually applaud the, the the choice to make this movie sort of like not sort of anti-religion. I actually think that's a really good choice. Sure. I think at this point in, in the year of our Lord 2022, at this point, it's super lazy to just sure. sort of blame. It's it's like making it's like trying to make a movie about race and making the old white Southern sheriff the racist right it's like it's been done a thousand times already right <laughs> and so i applaud the the, uh, the movie's choice to not just sort of make this these are a bunch of bible thumpers and that's right. why they hate gay people and great but then give us something else don't just sort of leave it open right give us a motivation and this is symptomatic it. of a larger problem within screenplays nowadays where there's like no exposition like there's just so much of an allergy to telling us anything like they're just so determined to show us everything but that doesn't always work. Like, especially, there are hints and little dribs and drabs here of who Owen is as a person. Like, there's illusions that this camp has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. That, like, they're in, a, you know, a red part of America. Like, there are, but I need something, as a viewer, I need something else to ground his motivation yeah. so that I understand where he's coming from. For, I mean, there's that scene where he's, like, encouraging the boys to shoot their rifles. And that feels very alt-right to me. But again, I would have liked some kind of revelation from him to give me that so i would feel like i cared about this character more. exactly and i think that leaning in and making him just sort of say an alt-right figure or one of those weird like almost like eugenicist type people that right. it's like it's just sort of better for the species of everyone is straight something like that just give us some clear motivation for why he's gone to the lengths of owning and maintaining this camp which of course runs afoul of the law and all, all kinds of things like why go to all this trouble to do this very unpopular thing right. <laughs> 
there needs to be a reason for it. Yep. Which I think, you know, there's, as I get older and I pay more attention to these things, there's a lot of screenplay problems in this movie. Like, there's a lot of pacing problems in particular. And I've talked to other people who have watched it who were also flummoxed by the fact that we make it almost an hour into the movie before anybody dies. Like, there's one death in the, like, the prelude. Mm -hmm. But that's it. And then... Nothing. And then, well, a bit earlier than that, there is the death of the creepy groundskeeper. Sure. Because, of course, we're at a camp where slasher stuff is going to happen. There has to be a creepy groundskeeper. But we kill him fairly early on so that we know that he's not the killer. Sure. But, that's, but that's the, that, that serves a narrative function. But then mm-hmm. nobody else dies. Exactly. So, but then they all, the di- deaths all occur, like, within 20 minutes. Yeah. Which... Like I, I don't feel the sense of like tension that needs to happen. Like part of how slashers as genres work is that there's a death that happens pretty early on. It's usually someone who's making out in the woods, mm-hmm. and that helps to build the tension that leads to the climax. But there's mm-hmm. no, t- I mean, exactly. because this movie seems torn in two parts. Like there's the psychological drama part of the horror of conversion therapy, but then there's the retribution. But they don't really fit well together because they're pulling each other apart. And so there's two movies fighting to get out, and neither of them comes out being very good. In my estimation, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. I, yeah, I have nothing else to say. I think you can nailed it right there. <laughs> and like, I mean, this is this which it's so galling that this is so bad because this writer and director is a screenplay writer who's been noted for writing very good screenplays. Exactly. Which I'm like, what are you doing? Like, why are you so incapable of writing something that's decent when you literally have written the screenplay for Gladiator, one of the best epic movies of the 21st century? Mm-hmm. Like, I just was like, what? What is happening right now? I mean, yeah. So that was very frustrating to witness. And just, I don't know. It was just, John Logan, I don't know what you're doing, but maybe don't direct and write. Maybe pass this on to somebody else. Yes, maybe it's, you know, there is something to that idea of having a different set of eyes. (laughs) You know, someone who writes a story and then someone else do the work of being, you know, bringing those words to life on screen. (laughs) Right. Because I do think that, you know, as a as a slasher, we do expect more people to die in more satisfying ways. Because it's also revealing that, like, none of the deaths are even particularly interesting. There's And, there, and I understand this is PG-13, so there's limits to what we can see, especially on, like, a TV streamer like Peacock. Mm-hmm. But even so, like, the, mo- the sort of misogynist douchebag who's the sports director and his girlfriend, like, neither of whom have been really converted, because mm-hmm. they're both, like... People who graduated from the camp. Yeah, exactly. So we've got those characters. Again, another sort of a knock at conversion therapy. Right. Who are <laughs> you using... know, we have the former campers who... It didn't work. <laughs> right. And so they're secretly... Like, having heavy petting slash dry humping, but looking at pictures of their... You know, each one is looking at a picture of the person they find attractive, which, of course, is the same sex. Mm-hmm. And then they get hatcheted to death. But it doesn't... It feels silly and, like, not particularly gruesome or chilling or there's just not a lot of bite to it mm-hmm. which i mean given that this is a slasher i want that like yeah. i want to like that's part of the thing that's part of what makes like if you look at scream for example it's sort of the sort of you know the modern best slasher the deaths in those movies are genuinely disturbing mm-hmm. even when they're not like super graphic but yeah. they're definitely disturbing like the girl who's smashed to death in a garage door or they stab the principal and hang him up by the uh, the goalpost, like those are viscerally disturbing moments, but I didn't get any of that mm-hmm. in a mo- in this movie, which obviously all of these deaths are motivated by vengeance for their cruelty 
to Anna Shlumsky's character, who was the patient there years ago. And so they're supposed to have a payoff. Like, that's supposed to be the emotional payoff mm-hmm. for all of this. But because they're shot so... Un- and that's the thing. They're just shot boringly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. this is why, again, why maybe screenplay writers shouldn't be directors, because they mm-hmm. don't understand or don't really know how to stage something in a way that's visually interesting. Yeah, but this movie has a particular challenge there. So, uh, you know, to give just a little bit of credit to the creative team, this movie itself, because of the way it's written, presents a real challenge for how to show those deaths because they do need to be the motivation for... um, you know, they need to ultimately be explained at the end. Right. And so they need to match the explanation that's going to come. But the explanation of it being the nurse character who herself was a camper who had been tortured at the camp in the past, because that's so obvious. Right. That doesn't leave a lot of room to play with those deaths earlier on when they happen, before we get the reveal. The screenplay kind of backs itself into a corner. Right. Yeah, and I mean, it's... It's not very horrifying for a horror movie, and it's not very interesting, and it's very predictable. Like, obviously most slashers are to some degree predictable, Mm -hmm. but there's a level at which it just becomes blasé and tedious. Yeah, so like in this case, you know, when we ultimately get at the, you know, right near the end, the killer is revealed, and of course the killer is the person who works at the camp who was obviously against the motives of the camp. Right. To begin with. Yeah, I mean, arguably the only death that I think really has impact is Gabriel, who's the sort of, and I'm, I'm not kidding you, called the Forbidden Fruit. Yes, the sort TJ's of, new nickname. The waifish, sort of gender androgynous that's used to seduce the jock, and then the jock is subjected mm-hmm. to electroshock therapy. Yeah. Um, which then, Gabriel is himself tormented by Shlomsky's character, with electroshock, but yeah. it's electrocuted. That is one of the few moments in the movie where, like, it's viscerally like ah, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. because of course it's fitting that that's how he dies because it's the tools of conversion used against the enemy, yeah. and it's because that person also, you know, the the forbidden fruit character is also working as a plant as it, right. as it so happens, uh, because the character of Gabriel is there posing. Right. As a camper who's there to be converted, but is actually being used by the camp as a way of tempting folks to see if the conversion is working or not. Right. So it, it, that piece of death feels justified and appropriate and commensurate with the offense. Juxtapose that with Cora, who we've already said is arguably one of the most horrifying characters, mm-hmm. whose death happens off screen mm-hmm. and so quickly that it feels like that's it? Like, this person who is arguably the most sophisticated at torturing these children mm-hmm. is the one who gets the... I don't know, it just felt like, what, what's the point? Like, what's the... the va- like, it just doesn't feel like it matters. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. Like, that's not what I expected of, a, of even a subpar slasher. Like, there should be some kind of, like, significance to this death. And, I mean, even Kevin... Even Owen gets impaled on a rhinoceros horn, which... Is appropriate, I suppose. Yeah, he, you know, he's a man's man. You, you gotta have yeah. stuffed animal heads on right, the wall. Right, so that, that too <laughs> feels commensurate. And, you know, I think justified and feels cathartic. Mm-hmm. And so I applaud the film for at least taking a little bit of a risk with both his death and Gabriel's. But I wish I could have seen that with the others, too. Yeah. That would have helped each... if. if and a smarter screenplay, each of them would have met a death that was, like, mm-hmm. symbolic... And especially since this character has gone to such lengths to orchestrate this whole thing 
you'd think she was a little would have been a little more clever in figuring out how to kill people. Mm-hmm. Like her kid, Molly is her is the name. Like you would have thought that she would have found a better way of if this if indeed her whole motivation, as she says in the in the climax, is to abolish these camps and show people how evil they are then why aren't their deaths more significant or more symbolically yeah. weighted? And the thing is, there's a, she sneaks in a quick little explanation that I think was the script's attempt at, at covering the, the problem that you just brought up. And that she says that these murders are going to make these camps look bad. Right. And that will make people stop supporting them. And so for that reason, it makes sense that they might just look like kind of random killings as opposed to oh. being so highly symbolic is because it doesn't need to be clear who's actually killing. Right. And in fact, we might not want it to be clear who's actually doing the killings. We just want to be like, look what happens at these camps. Right. But it's so rushed. And it's so juxtaposed against her obvious vengeance as opposed to, say, a righteous desire to end this. (laughs) That I think that that rushed explanation doesn't work. Right. I mean, there's there's a lot. So we're going to, we we are reaching our climax of this Mm -hmm. right now. Which, of course, is the film's politics. Because you can't divorce a film like this from its politics. The, tit- yeah. the politics is embedded in the title. It's embedded in the narrative. It's just it's seething underneath all of it. So I feel like we have to talk about it. So I actually read a couple of reviews before I watched it just to get a sense of what I was getting in for. And I have to say that the tenor of this... People were like, who exactly is this movie for? And that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Because part of the climax is when Molly says that the whole reason she's doing this, obviously, is to get revenge on Owen and the monsters he's hired for the torture they've put both her and other teenagers through. And then she basically confronts Jordan and is like, now it's your turn to shoot him. And like, we'll do, go on this salvific rampage and just like go to all these other camps that are scattered over the country. And I was with her right up until that point. Because mm-hmm. then what ends up happening is it forces Jordan and symbolically the viewer, obviously, to confront like this arguably false equivalence between her murderous rampage on one hand and Owen's monstrous torture of children on the other. Mm-hmm. And that's a really vexing choice to make creatively when they could have just had her be like, okay, it's done. I'm done. I don't, like, I've done what I came to do. Rather than have this very weird savior complex, mm-hmm. which feels just bizarre. Yeah. And it's poli- as I said, it, it makes this movie a political mess that it didn't have to be. Yeah, but that said, because I, I agree with you, but that said, that's actually one of the braver choices that I think the movie makes, is to sort of wade into that territory, because it didn't do that in other ways that I thought it should have. Where, you know, again, coming up with sort of non-religious, non-religious examples of horrific homophobia and transphobia. Like, they could have actually targeted someone, you know, groups that actually exist in the world that are homophobic and transphobic, but don't use religion as their basis. They could have targeted that, right. but they didn't. But in this case, they actually did force us to deal with a really tough question. If you've been horrifically tortured by awful people, what, is re- what does valid revenge look like? Mm. <laughs> you know, and I think the reason why critics are so upset about this movie is because, like, you're right, it forces them to face that really tough question. Right. But not, I mean, I think the argument is is that it's not a very, it's not very thoughtfully or smartly done. Mm-hmm. Because it forces Jordan to basically be, like, to disavow both Molly's violence and Owen's. Yeah. And it, it suggests, and this is the argument that I've read from a number of critics, trans ones in particular, that it suge- the film implies that 
the violence perpetrated by conversion camps is equivalent to the desire to abolish those camps. Like that's mm-hmm. the that's the false equivalence. Well, that well we well no, and I, and I would say that that's actually a false equivalence on the part of the critics. Because that's not actually what the movie says. The movie doesn't say the desire to abolish the camp. The desire the movie says the desire to abolish the camps by killing everyone who works at them. Sure. That's actually the equivalence that the movie sets up. That's so this is one where I think the critics are actually kind of straw manning a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I do think that that's a vex I mean, I agree with him I agree with you, but I also agree with him that that is a vexing argument to make or mm-hmm. to frame it that way in the year of our lord 2022 when violence against queer people is on the rise mm-hmm. that positioning queer people as vi- queer people's violence as itself equally a problem to the to the to the persecution of those queer people is a is a, is a choice as yeah. they say it's yeah. a choice but, that one can make but it's a really interesting one and i'm gonna i'm gonna say this just because i don't of course, want to minimize violence against anybody at all. But one of the things about the violence that we're talking about against the queer characters who sort of exist in the world of this movie, they all lived. Well, that's and, true. and one of the things is that that argument that I hear from a lot of these critics, they all make sense to me only if you don't know anyone who's actually been murdered. Right. Like, it's easy to talk about violence in that way right. as though it's somehow worse than murder. Unless you actually know someone who's been murdered, and I'm from, I grew up in the hood, I know a lot of people who've been murdered. <laughs> so to me, I approach this very differently from a lot of those critics who just don't have this kind of frame to analyze right. this kind of stuff. No, and I think that's fair. Um, but I do think that in a braver movie, and the movie I was kind of hoping to see, and I, I take your point, like symbolic murder on t- in, in films and TV is not the same as real murder. Mm-hmm. But there's something, I do think there is can be something cathartic about queer villainy that a braver movie, say one directed by Ryan Murphy, would mm-hmm. have fully embraced. Yeah. That it would have given Theo the, either Theo would have embraced Molly's approach or more, I think, bravely would have just had Theo and the current, the campers just rebelling and killing all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the horrible camp people. Yeah. That would have been a braver, mm-hmm. I think, take on this subject rather than what we get. Yeah. Or even for me, if the movie didn't want to go in that direction, and less brave but even more reasonable take would have been to just kind of actually follow up on with what the movie does and actually have Theo say, there's a third option here. (laughs) You don't have to either let the camps do what they do or murder a bunch of people. You could go to the cops. Right. Because the cops show up in short order and actually help save everyone in this movie. Right, but even that, I have to say that even that fell flat to me because there's a point in the movie where Owen basically says, nobody cares about these kids because I rule around here. Mm -hmm. Which is a good piece of exposition, but we don't get any supporting evidence for that claim. Mm -hmm. Which if we had, and this is why I think a, a better prologue could have shown us more material to help us understand the world in which this is located because mm-hmm. other because as it is we're just sort of thrown into it in media res which can work in a smarter screenplay but mm-hmm. with a more pedestrian screenplay like this one we need a little bit more to give us a sense of like where all these people are coming from so if we had seen for example them passing through the nearby town mm-hmm. and, see, and seen the way that owen's influence spreads exactly. if for that matter we had seen these kids with their families and under and had like a tableau that would have shown each of them before they arrived at camp. It would have a made us care about these characters who otherwise are almost interchangeable, just because they're not that interesting. Mm-hmm. And B allowed us to sort of would have taken the place of the round robin 
confessional scene at the camp, which doesn't really have a lot of value to it anyway. Yeah. And it's kind of boring to watch. Exactly. But there's also, again, something where I I think the screenplay might have been trying to do something interesting, like with that issue of Owen's influence over the town when he says that, you know, nobody would care about these kids anyway. He just says that. Mm. Maybe in the world of the movie, it's not even true. Right. But these kids are isolated. They don't have anywhere else to go. They don't know anybody in this town. They can, they're out of town anyway. They're out in the wilderness. It's a camp. They have to walk for you know very very far just to get to town. Right. They don't know anything about the environment there. He could just be lying to them. Right. <laughs> but see, this is the problem when, when I when I opened this section about what I didn't like was pacing because pacing matters so much in a movie when you have only an hour and what forty minutes to deal with. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have a whole lot of time. Like you. You got to get things, you got to give just the best pieces of information to help it all work. But because this movie is so ambitious and tries to do so many things, it doesn't particularly do them very well when a simpler, more streamlined story, I think, would have been much more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I really do think that, that one of the problems is that we don't really get to know any of the characters. Like, certainly things are supposed to give us warm fuzzies like the young black character who loves theater falls in Mm -hmm. love with the jock who then falls in love with him which is nice Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have a lot of weight because we don't care about because i just don't care about these characters very much exactly and again like so let's talk about those characters a little bit because i want to love these characters i don't hate them as characters i just kind of don't care that much about them and this is i think symptomatic of the film's genre problem because in a slasher typically you have a panoply of characters that open the film Mm -hmm. half of which are dead by the middle of it Mm -hmm. but because the film can't do that because the victims are not the queer people they're the camp counselors Mm -hmm. but because they also don't die we spend a lot of time with thinly drawn characters who don't die but also don't do much significant either yeah because we we, this isn't a movie where we kill off all the queers so we we don't want to do that right but although again we do have the two counselors who were struggling and they're still kind of queer but (laughs) so they die but 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 we don't those aren't the queers we care about (laughs) they're they're the queers on the wrong side so we don't care about and we've already seen them as villainous (laughs) exactly and admittedly not very interesting and again and also with gabriel again so again like three of the characters who die are queer right but they're the queers we don't care about and i mean I don't generally like to, you know, take a film to task for what it isn't. I try to judge it for what it is. But I'm imagining a, f- a different film, if you will. One that is directed by Ryan Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, one that is a little, leans a little more into the camp. It doesn't take itself quite so seriously. Where we get more emphasis on the adult campers, or camp counselors, who we see more, get more insight into their cruelty, which then makes their deaths that much more satisfying. Yeah, that, that would have been nice. That's what I think it wanted to be. But because it feels itself torn into two directions to give the queer characters enough depth and or quote unquote depth, but doesn't want to like jump into the killing yet. Like it just kind of you understand what I'm saying? It's like it's a yeah, muddle, yeah, and it feels exactly. very frustrating to watch as a viewer. Yeah, and there like there's the way that you just propose it would make the movie better. I would I I would probably like that movie. I would like a movie that just decided to just make the kids the focus of the movie right. and actually make them the heroes and the villains come from the kids right. and that would give them a chance to make the young characters more interesting because we've talked about some of the kids we, we talked about the jock and the kid he falls in love with they at least get a lot of screen time there's a whole subset of slightly younger kids at the camp who barely show up I don't even think they, their names even get mentioned in the movie <laughs> like, like we do nothing with them we could have done something with like half a dozen of these kid characters who literally do nothing in the movie that would have been great or like the the two sort of people who work at the camp and the one plant who also kind of works for the camp 
if we had just gone more in depth with them and actually made them a bigger part of the movie. Right. I might even enjoy that movie right. instead. Because <laughs> they actually have some interesting stuff you could say about them. Right. With this weird sort of battle that they're playing with this outer image of trying to be straight for the two counselors or the outer image of being gay and wanting to be converted for the one kid that, or is, that's called the forbidden fruit but is actually working for the camp. There's a lot more we could have explored with those characters. But we didn't. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's again, it's all, I mean, if I had to pick the one flaw of this movie, not to beat a dead horse, it's pacing. Mm-hmm. Because it gives attention to weird things that I don't care about, but doesn't talk about the things that we should care about. Like this whole sequence where they go out into the woods, for example. Mm-hmm. Why is that there? Yeah. Like, what, nothing happens in that sequence. Exactly. At and all. And that's the kind of scene where something should have happened. So there's a scene where at, they've been at the camp maybe for a day or so, and then they have to do the thing that happens at all kinds of sort of wilderness-oriented things where there's a thing where they say, get a partner. And then the two of you go out in the woods, and you're going to stay there all night. Like, that's actually a fairly common kind right. of activity for this. And it's perfect <laughs> ground for all kinds of dramatic things to bubble up in a movie. And we use it for almost nothing. Right. I mean, the only scene that matters, or two scenes, are the, was the one we talked about with Carrie Preston, and then the one where Owen's taking them shooting, where he mm-hmm. goes on and on about how, like, killing is part of the male nature. But again, like the scene with Carrie Preston, it just sort of sits in the middle of the movie and doesn't do anything. Because it doesn't really matter... To what else happens? Yeah, like I, I mean, there's also the scene where they shoot the dog, which is awful, and I hate when movies do that cheap thrill. And also, the dog is clearly just sleeping. Like <laughs> that's also a problem. <laughs> they, they didn't bother, but like we were saying when we watched the movie, if it if it looked too realistic, then people would be all upset but about at least, the dead dog. <laughs> but at least it would have had about like it would have had an emotional punch. But yeah. because with so many other things in this movie, it this hangs there limpidly. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where I'm like, I would have just taken it out entirely because it's the kind of thing that there are too many people who would just be taken out of the movie and be like now i'm just upset about the dog and so that's all i'm gonna talk about (laughs) sure i mean yeah because the whole thing is owen tries to force one of the campers to shoot the dog to prove their masculinity because he's suffering and if the camper doesn't do it then one of the other counselors will break each of its it's a whole big thing Mm -hmm. but it has no payoff because ultimately jordan's the one who shoots it anyway so like it's not even that horrifying yeah so it's just another moment like the film as a whole keeps putting its toe on something interesting or getting right up to the line of doing something fascinating. Only to jerk it back and because, <laughs> like, they don't have, like, they are afraid to take risks because they don't want to offend anyone. Yeah. So they make a movie called They Slash Them, which is a cheap pun to start with. But then they don't even do anything interesting with the premise. Mm-hmm. And so the whole movie ends up feeling empty, vacuous, and sort of like thoroughly meh like i didn't hate it let me put it that way i did not hate it i found it i wasn't bored particularly mm-hmm. uh, i was kind of like feeling like we're watching a psychological drama for the first hour which is fine i guess mm-hmm. um but i was just like meh. like it's just i don't know I, I expected something more interesting if it was gonna i was hoping if it was going to be anything that would be bad but in an interesting way instead it's mediocre in a not very interesting way. Yeah, exactly. Because even where, like, again, like TJ, like you've said so many times, like there are so many interesting things that the movie sets up and then just doesn't give us the payoff. Because even thinking about, like, the, calling the movie they, them and seeming to make that to be such a part of the movie, which, of course, that's because Jordan, the Hildermate's character, is sort of the main character in this. Okay. And their main issue is wanting to get emancipated so that they can make their own decisions about how they're going to proceed with their identity in life and all that kind of stuff. Okay, great. 
But again, you know, like you said, because it's that lacking that sort of innate bravery, this is a movie that's going to try very hard to avoid the trope of making that trans or non-binary mm. character the villain. Right. Or appear villainous in any way, shape, or form. So we, when we have characters who go by they, them, or are trans, they can't be the bad ones. Well, the problem with that is that you've already kind of given away what the movie is. Right. <laughs> it's like there can't be much suspense if we already know how things have to go because of what the politics of the movie are. This movie is full of potential. Like It could have been a really, really interesting take on the, you know, on the way that you know, on the sort of traditional camp slasher film. Mm-hmm. But instead, it feels like, as I said earlier, two genres that are just kind of pulling apart and don't really do anything particularly mm-hmm. interesting. Oh, and I just realized when we were talking about, uh, you know, one of the things with this movie trying to be what it is and how it's also avoiding things, we forgot to mention specifically the movie Sleepaway Camp. Because there are lots of other movies, some things that we've already talked about, some other comparisons we've made to things like Scream and all that kind of stuff. Uh, of course, there's But I'm a Cheerleader. We right. can talk about that a bit. But Sleepaway Camp uh, uh, is another one, which of course isn't a conversion camp, but is a slasher movie from back in the day. And of course, it's the 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 sort of gender non-traditional character who is the big bad in that movie the camper who is uh, a girl but was born a boy but was raised as a girl and of course is fighting against it is the killer in that movie sleepaway camp sorry to spoil it for you but it's a really old movie <laughs> uh this movie of course has to avoid being sleepaway camp right it can't fall into that same politics so so i was it just leaves us with kind of nothing right <laughs> so yeah i mean i do agree with you that this film is in conversation with earlier sort of queer texts and like but I'm a cheerleader and so forth. But what makes it especially frustrating for, you know, for me as a, as a viewer is that, you know, John Logan is himself gay. So like you would think that a a gay director and screenwriter would be a little more adventurous, but unfortunately that's not what we get. We get someone who's clearly just kind of afraid of offending. And so it does leave it ambiguous, like who exactly this movie is is made for because i think in trying to please both straight and gay audiences it ultimately ends up not doing either particularly well mm-hmm. and i even think that at this point of like with the trying to please gay and straight audiences at this point for a movie like this i feel like they would be kind of looking for the same stuff anyway. right <laughs> it's more just kind of like for me maybe there's more of just kind of wanting to walk a fine line or of maybe sort of branching into something that really tries to highlight trans and non-binary characters in addition to gay and bisexual characters as opposed to treating those characters as a footnote. Because we have a whole lot of queer-themed movies that treat trans people as a footnote. (laughs) And this one tries not to do that. But again, it's in that way, it's kind of like a straight person making a movie about gay people and maybe just trying not to step on toes. That's true. And And it's not as if, like, there aren't other examples of boring gay directors. I just kind of wish that Logan had been a little more adventurous because he's done other really adventurous screenplays. Like he wrote the screenplay for Sweeney Todd. So like, it's not that he's not familiar with how to write punchy stuff. It's just that for some reason, all that seems to have gone out the window with this, you know, with a more thematically complicated subject. Mm -hmm. So that seems like a good place maybe to conclude our main discussion. Um, We've certainly touched on a lot of subjects. And like I said, I want to just reiterate that we didn't hate this movie. And as Aaron was saying in the pregame, like there is value in the idea of a gay movie just being okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, and of course, throughout this podcast, you'll hear me say this kind of thing a lot because it's something that I've wished for for so long. Is I've wanted us to get to a point where we don't need uh, queer themed movies to be impactful masterpieces. I want us to get to a point where it can just be a movie <laughs> where we can just sort of have things that are just a little bit of fun or sort of interesting to watch that doesn't have to do the work of elevating our politics so much because being represented in movies just becomes normal. And when we get to that point, we can just kind of have fluff. Right. Yeah. And so I think that there is perhaps maybe even something a little bit like radical <laughs> about that idea mm-hmm. that we've reached this point of representation where it does, not every movie has to be Brokeback Mountain. Exactly. Like, but I'll, you know that it, that we've now reached a point where there are just so many mediocre gay representations that not everyone has to be a heartstopper, exactly. for example, or any of the other sort of more hope, high profile that we can have, like nice fluffy rom coms like Crush, which we talked mm-hmm. about a while later. We can have relative, you know, very mediocre slashers like they slash them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there are all there's. All kinds of potential that, you know, that not every movie has to bear this enormous weight. Exactly. Um, which there is something, I think, kind of refreshing about that, even as these movies may not be particularly, you know, fun or enjoyable to watch. But look at it this way. The straights don't have it great either. Like, they, they, they're they subjected to even more mediocre entertainment exactly. than we are. Yeah. So we have, yeah. And I would say they have the privilege of having so much more mediocre entertainment. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's like, and even thinking about the way that I'm critiquing this movie, and I'm sort of being honest in my feelings about this when I say I didn't hate it, you know, but I also, I like crappy movies, so, and this is kind of a crappy movie, and I like it for that, but it's not a great movie. (laughs) But I like the fact that I can say that about this movie. If you had asked me to offer this kind of critique of a queer-themed movie 20 years ago, I would have felt far less comfortable saying, yeah, I thought it was kind of crappy. Because back then, we needed the movies <laughs> to be so much more impactful. We needed them to be something that we could sort of look at and say, this is a wonderful, good thing to have. <laughs> this one can kind of be a throwaway. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And I mean, <laughs> we're, we've now reached the point where we're beyond eating out. Like, we don't have to spend time defending eating out. Although we have done that here on mm-hmm. Points of the Bees. We did have an entire episode devoted, an hour-long episode to eating out. But we don't have to do that. Like, we don't always have to elevate every single thing into the, you know, the pantheon of great queer art. Exactly. Alright, well that seems like a good place to wrap up our main discussion. So, give us just a few minutes to gather ourselves and do a little bit of refreshing. And we'll be right back to do one of our favorite segments, Are You Even Gay? Okay, well, we didn't do this last week, um, so I feel like we need to, you know, bring ourselves back to the traditional ways of doing things here at Queens of the Bees. Uh, We believe in tradition here Mm -hmm. at Queens of the Bees. Yes, we have our ways. (laughs) I don't like to change is the gist of this. That's what we're getting at. And, you know, the Are You Even Gay is a a fixture here at Queens, and we're going to keep on with that tradition, particularly since I can so easily make use of my online presence to know about things that Aaron doesn't know about. So this week I get to give Aaron a bit of a hard time about something, I think. So Aaron, I have to ask you, have you listened to Beyonce's new album Renaissance yet? We'll see about that. Um, see, I'm, I'm going to. I promise that I, I will listen to it at some point, but no, I, ha- wow. I, I haven't. Now I have to, to I, okay, so a couple of things that I need to make note of. First of all, 
I have to admit that I am myself not a huge fan of Beyonce's solo work. I know that's like uh, that is the gravest heresy among the queer community. I still say Destiny's Child was her best. <laughs> I I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. Um, I did like Lemonade better than I liked some of her other pop music. She's a lot like Kelly Clarkson in that her pop music tends to be rather forgettable. I think. That being said, um, I did really like Renaissance. I thought it was quite adventurous in terms of its sound. I thought she took some risks, which she did with Lemonade too. Um, again, I'm not. I don't worship at the cult uh, at the altar of Beyonce, but I did appreciate this album, and I felt like I was being shamed by the online queer Twitterati for not <laughs> having seen it yet. Not no one had said that, but I could sense that if you were one of the gays who had not listened to this album yet, that you were you were, uh, you know, uh, an apostate or, you know, possibly um, excommunicated from the gay, the high gays. Anyway, but I, it is good. And I, you know, I, I think that I really quite enjoyed it. I will also be honest, I didn't enjoy it, however, as much as I enjoyed Lizzo's new album, which I'm going to assume Aaron has also not listened to. Yeah. And I'm not promising to listen to it's that. It's really good, I'm though. I'm promising to listen to Beyonce. Uh, but Lizzo's <laughs> album is really good, and I think, actually, I liked it. I think it's a more infectiously listenable album. Like, I don't know if it's as artistically sophisticated as Bay's, but I do think that Lizzo is, a, is really good at crafting earworms, and I really, really liked that her new album special. I think you should listen to that, too. So, since you haven't listened to either of these, and you're not going to listen to at least one of them... By the way, Lizzo has a song called Everybody's Gay, so I can't think why you won't watch it, but listen to it. <laughs> I have to ask you, Aaron, are you even gay? Well, I, that, 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 that's fair, I suppose. I, I deserve it this time, everyone. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite as egregious as not being attuned to the scandal surrounding Funny Girl, but on the other mm. hand, it's not as egregious as me having not actually seen Funny Girl. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, we, we all have our fair share of blame to go around for our lack of gay knowledge. Exactly. But if you, We've got to go be more gay. Well, that can be arranged. <laughs> there, I can always be more gay. Can you? I think it's possible. I mean, I am, as you say, the forbidden fruit. So I am pretty much, and have frequently been told that I'm one of the gayest people that people have met. So, and I was informed by my former co-host, Mark, who heard it through one of his, our listeners, that I bring the queerness to the pod with my voice. So I really am the epitome, or <laughs> the epitome of queerness. I just wanted to say epitome. Um, oh man, we got really far afield on this. But anyway, if you haven't already... I must recommend that you listen to both Lizzo and Beyonce, both of whom are very skilled artists and, you know, both of whom give recognition to queer people. Like, Beyonce acknowledges her gay uncle in Renaissance. I think that's who she devoted the album to. And as I said, Lizzo has the song Everybody's Gay. So come on now. I mean, these are our new goddesses. We must worship them appropriately. So I think that's all we have for Are You Even Gay? Unless Aaron wants to spring out something of a surprise on me this week. No, no, no. No stealth no, attacks no, this no, week? No, no, no. I'm properly chastened this time. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I am the chastener that and this. Um, just consider me the molly of this relationship. <laughs> See, we're going to have to send Aaron to gay conversion camp but to convert him to the other way. Yes, yes. <laughs> so wait, wait, I work at a university. Isn't that the same that, thing? Say, that is the gay indoctrination <laughs> center of the country. That's what that... that I, Aaron's being... He's, he's being groomed by... Anyway, we don't need to go too far afield there. Anyway, so that's all we have for Are You Even Gay this week. So stay with us for just another moment more and we'll be right back to give you our social media channels. Oh, 
All right, well, thank you everyone for listening to another fabulous episode of Queens of the Bees. We really did enjoy talking about they, them, even though we didn't enjoy the movie that much. We enjoyed talking about it. Me. And, and it was me. It was me. But this podcast was yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We have completely lost our minds here at Queens of the Beast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but if you have listened to us for any length of time, you know that's how it goes around here. And as always, I have to ask Aaron, do you have any social media channels that we should know about? No. He does not. The poor guy isn't even on TikTok. It's it's really shameful. I'm too old for TikTok. I don't think I'm allowed on the platform. I mean, I too am too old for TikTok. I have technically an account, but I still to this day do not understand. Yeah, I, I, do I, not... I think literally my phone is blocked from having I can understand. They're like, you're old, go away. I can understand Snapchat <laughs> because at least you can share dirty videos with people that automatically delete. Like that I understand, but I truly do not understand the point of TikTok. I don't get it at all. That does not stop me from forming my own TikTok shortly, which will be called Pisces Pop Culture. But... <laughs> That's a, for a project for another day. Anyway, so in that case, you can follow me on social media on Twitter at TJ West and the number three. You can follow me on Instagram at Thomas West and the number three. This guy doesn't even have Instagram. And he really mm. barely uses Twitter. It's really quite shameful. Yeah, which one is the Insta Snap? I don't know which one. <laughs> anyway, so you can follow us on both of those. And one day you'll be able to follow us on Instagram on our own Queens of the Bees handle, but not just yet. And of course, you can also download our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, so forth and so on. But just as importantly, if you have a few moments, we would really appreciate it if you could give us a ranking. And if you are really, really ambitious, you could leave us a a review. We do read them and we take them very seriously as long as you don't hurt our feelings, which is to say you don't criticize us. If you offer us only exuberant, ebullient praise, we love that. But, you know, I suppose if you have criticism, Aaron can read those ones. I don't, I don't. I don't deal well with criticism. We'll leave that one to Aaron. I, I can take it. Yeah. Um, so he, he can take criticism. There's some things he can't take, if you know what I mean. But Wow. <laughs> wow. So if you're so inclined to leave us a rating and review, it really would help us out because it does help build visibility. Because if you don't know this, the more recommendations, or sorry, the more ratings you have, the easier it is for us to be found by other people who want to hear our ramblings about queer pop culture. So if you have a chance, please do that. And as always, we want to express our profound gratitude to all of you who've stuck with us through the past year, and we're coming up on our second year here at Queens, so we definitely appreciate each and every one of you who's stuck with us through the change of hosts and through the change of like where we were hosting our podcast, so we really, really, really appreciate all of you. So for Queens of the Bees, I just want to thank you all again, and we will see you next week. Hip, hip.